Welcome to No Apology with the Bible Idiots. It is Wednesday. I'm Emily Danielson, and today is the day of the week for our long-form teaching. And so, Chris is going to, believe it or not, be bringing you a message where he takes a look at all 66 books of the Bible in 30 minutes. That's right. All 66 books, even some of the, well, all of the more obscure books like Obadiah, Zephaniah. And he's going to look at the purpose of each book, how they fit together, and how they all point to Jesus Christ as God and as our Savior. So here's Pastor Chris Danielson with a jet tour through the Bible. I'm going to give you a buffet table with 66 dishes on it. And you're going to get a very small taste from each, but you will have a full plate by the end of this message, I hope. I've always wanted to do this. I've wanted to do it by memory, but I'm too old. But I want you to see in one sitting what God has given us as our final authority for our life here on earth. Even when we don't like what it says, when it doesn't line up with what we want, we still got to go back to it. And if you immerse yourself in this book, you can live a victorious life in Christ. He will give you the strength. It's part of that ask, knock, and seek mentality. So let's do it, should we? Let's start with Genesis. In the beginning, it's God, our creator God. He introduces us to the whole theme of the Bible, the fall of humans into sin and the first promise of redemption for mankind. We get to meet Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and we get Joseph in his coat of many colors. We see the garden, we see the flood, we see the founding of God's nation in the world. Then we get to Exodus. The title of Exodus means to depart or exit recounts the great redemptive events that made God's nation, Israel, as a collective. This book forms the theological heart of the Old Testament. And we meet Moses in the burning bush. We get the Ten Commandments. We get the Ten Plagues. We get our booming voice where we can say, let my people go. And we get the Red Sea parted and we watch Pharaoh get his cork sunk. Then there's Leviticus. Leviticus is one of the hardest, if not the hardest, reads in the Bible. It's basically a manual for priests with the technical jargon and, and the various sacrifices, holy days, you know, that you got to observe this, dietary laws, and, and more. And if you want to punish a child during their timeout, make them read the King James Version of Leviticus. Make them record themselves and then make them play that back to themselves. Seriously, all jokes aside, the book is basically a call to Israel to holiness, and it's broken into two parts. The first part is the rules for holy worship, and the second part is the rules for holy living. Then Moses, in what's called the Pentateuch, gives us numbers. Numbers is the census count in the wilderness, and it is the account of the Israelis' 40-year aimless walk in the desert. The book takes us through the failure of Israel to enter the promised land due to rebellion. And I preached the message here uh, already about the richness of chapters 13 and 14, the spies with Caleb and Joshua and the bad report that they gave and what that led to in their lives. God won't be mocked, even all the way back into Judges. The message for us today is we must trust and obey that God will fulfill his plan for us as we trust him with our life. Then there's Deuteronomy. No question, this is the hardest book in the Bible to spell especially if you're going to try to type a report for somebody. 
Even spell check is like, what are you getting at? Dut o mama mimi? No. This is Moses' farewell address to Israel. He has a heartfelt appeal to the people to love the God that delivered them. One of the best verses in the Bible is Deuteronomy 6, 5. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And of course, Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. Instead, it's Joshua, and he's up next. Joshua tells the story of the conquest of Canaan and the promised land. Joshua actually picks up where Deuteronomy leaves off with Israel camped on the east bank of the Jordan. Following Moses' death, God commissions Joshua to lead. And with an amazing story of Jericho and the walls and the sniveling Gibeonites, our God giving victory after victory, demonstrating God's power in the allotment, dividing up the great promised land. And if you remember, I gave you the story of Caleb who chose the hard land. He chose the mountain lands. And that's from this book of the Bible that that comes from. Then we get to Judges. Judges tells the amazing story of various names we all know like Samson and Gideon. But maybe some that you don't know. Do you know about Ehud? The left-handed warrior who slayed the really, really fat, obese king? That's in there. But it reveals that Israel needs a godly king. And doing as we see fit, not allowing God to be the true king in our life and in our circumstances, leads to defeat and despair. Always. Every time. Then we get to the book of Ruth. Oh, I love this book. Boaz the Situation. That's what I used to say to Emily until she got so frustrated with it. I love that it's called Ruth, but the book could have easily been called Boaz or easily been called Naomi. Boaz plays the part of the kinsman redeemer, a concept you must know as you grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. Naomi plays the part of resolve in the midst of a broken life, have that resolve that comes from God. And this whole deal of the book of Ruth sets up the fact that a Moabite woman gets grafted in the line of David and in the line of Jesus. That's great news for Gentiles like us. All the way back in ancient times, God was still redeeming everybody through the nation of Israel. And I delivered a three-part sermon series, and it could have easily been five. First and Second Samuel. Now, First and Second Samuel were originally one volume, and they were first separated into two books in what's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint means 70. Seventy scholars separated, and they translated the Old Testament in the 3rd and 2nd centuries B.C., and when they all got back together, they found their translations were absolutely identical, with maybe a couple little punctuation changes. The Septuagint is a miracle of God that says, my word is my word, and it's good for all of eternity. The book tells the story of the rule from judges to the rule of kings. The last judge is Samuel in Judges, and he actually anoints the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. And First and Second Samuel is what's called theological history. It's not so concerned about the general events of a king's reign, but listen now, it's about the king's faithfulness or unfaithfulness to God and the blessings and curses that came upon the nation as a result. Something America should heed, I dare say. Then there's First and Second Kings. It's another one that was one book. It was one volume, Septuagint, separated into one and two. And here you get Solomon's reign, the kingdom divides into the awesomeness of, uh, the kingdom gets divided, and then you see the awesomeness of Elijah and Elisha's ministries, and it gives outstanding examples of God ruling in ancient Israel, just like he will rule in our lives today. First and Second Chronicles is very similar in the fact that it was one volume separated at the Septuagint, and 
it was originally written for the Israelites after their return from exile in Babylon. It was written to reassure the Israelites that they were still God's chosen people. The book testifies to the faithfulness of God, that the faithfulness of God never, ever fails. Then you get Ezra and Nehemiah. Sound like a broken record? It was also one volume in the old Hebrew Bible, and it was actually called Ezra. And it tells the story of the return to the promised land. Ezra takes on the role of the rebuilding of the temple, and Nehemiah takes on the role of rebuilding the city, particularly the city wall. And you see Nehemiah, you see he's got the, uh, the dowel in one hand, he's got the sword in the other. He's building the wall, and he's fighting off some of the people. If you ever want to see how a Bible character like Nehemiah handled troublemakers, I encourage you to go read Nehemiah. God demonstrates his control over history and his faithfulness and his promises in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Then there's Esther. Oh, Esther is such a great story. A Jewish orphan became the queen of Persia and saved her people from destruction. You get Mordecai, you get Haman, you get the incredible story of a long shot bringing in the victory. It's right there in Esther. And we love the long shots bringing in the victory, don't we? It's a great book. But at the end of the day, it does two things. One, it recounts God's preservation of the chosen people against all odds. And number two, it explains the origin of the Feast of Purim. Now, the message is that even when it isn't apparent, even when it isn't apparent, listen to me now, even when it's not right in your face apparent, God is working behind the scenes to bring about his plans. And then we get to Job, and Job asks the big question, that a lot of us ask is, why do the innocent suffer? That question has puzzled the human race forever. It's one of the big arguments that people start making when they want to try to diss God. And the book of Job reveals that God is working out a purpose when the innocent suffer, even when that purpose remains a mystery. When we go through difficult times, we must remember that God has a reason. And in the end, we'll turn it all around for us if we continue to trust him. That's the big story of Job. Job continued to trust the Lord, even when his wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? The book of Psalms follows, and this is an amazing book. It's really like an Israeli worship manual, and it serves us so well to this day. Many of the chapters were written to be sung in the most incredible collection of lyrics the sovereignty of our Heavenly Father, the God of Abraham, artistic poems, deep reminders of the greatness of our God. And the Psalms is inspired aid to, believe, uh, to, to us believers in worship and all of life experiences. In all of life experiences, you can turn to the Psalms. I have a phrase that I say to Emily when we're going to do our morning devotions. It's just pick a number, 1 through 150. And that's all you got to do. Pick a number, 1 through 150. Open it up and just start reading it. Every day, write a psalm on your heart. Speaking of daily, how about if there was a book in the Bible that had 31 chapters in it so you could read one every day of the month, except for February? That'd be the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is a practical book of wisdom. It's full of short, memorable uh, statements and practical truths. And practical wisdom for godly living in our daily lives. And Proverbs just has some truth bombs in it, doesn't it? Just some smackdowns that you can't get away from. And it really, really is helpful. Then Ecclesiastes. If you were giving everything the world had to offer, everything that you ever wanted you were given, would you be happy? All of it. The pleasures, power, possessions. Solomon answers with a big fat no. 
No, not if you leave God out. Life without God leaves you empty, and this book tries to warn off the folly and the bitterness of trying to find happy apart from God. It just doesn't happen. Like I told you before, the rule of 21. You get 21 days or 21 times, and then it's the new normal. If you were bitter and unhappy as a broke person, you're going to be bitter and unhappy as a rich person, and vice versa. Then there's the Song of Songs. Sometimes this book is called the Song of Solomon. This is the Bible's celebration of romantic love. It's that a lifelong commitment is awesome and incredible. Chapter 6, verse 3 is actually inscribed on my wedding ring that I've had now for about a decade. It was made in Jerusalem. It's written in Hebrew. And it says, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. And it's my prized possession from Jerusalem. Emily, she wears the one ring that was forged in the fires of Mount Doom. One ring to rule them all. <laughs> Some people don't get that. It's a Lord of the Rings reference, sorry. Mine is from the Song of Songs, and this one's mine. All right, let's get into the major prophets. We've got to keep it moving today. Isaiah is considered the big dog of the prophets. Isaiah, his writings prophesied more about the coming Messiah than any other prophet. His ministry lasted six decades and covered the reign of several kings. He predicted with amazing accuracy the detailed events hundreds of years into the future. He also, throughout calls of God's people, he just had this call to God's people to come to repentance. Sin brings judgment every time. But God also offers forgiveness and restoration for all who trust in the promised Messiah. Then there's Jeremiah. Jeremiah is active during the last 40 years of the kingdom of Judah. Sometimes he's called the weeping prophet because he was announcing the pending doom of the, of, to the people because of their sins. And he suffered big time persecution because they rejected that message harshly. I mean, he was the one that was just have despair for his own people, wanting them to turn from their sins. But the takeaways from the Jeremiah book are twofold. Number one, we must take sin and its consequences seriously. And two, we must never give up hope for a better future in God. Jeremiah coined the phrase long before Winston Churchill, never give up, never give up, never give up. Trust God for a better future. The next book that we get to was also written by Jeremiah. Some people don't know this, but it's called Lamentations. Because of people's sin, God permitted Babylon to invade the promised land, lay siege to Jerusalem, breach its walls in the fourth month of 586 B.C. Now, one month later, they burned the temple and carried the people into exile. The book of Jeremiah predicted it, and now the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah writes and looks back at what actually happened. Together, the writings of this prophet tell us to remember this. Sin has dire consequences, and remember, there is always hope in God. Now, Ezekiel, while Jeremiah was doing his thing, Ezekiel was a younger contemporary at the same time. And Jeremiah is warning the people in Jerusalem, Zeke, he's out delivering the same message to the Jews already in exile. The book reveals the, re the reason for the destruction of the, of the glorious... The book reveals the reason for the destruction and the glorious future God still has in store for Israel. It explains it. It gives context to it. But he always comes back to that the future God has for us is still worth it. The big message is God's kingdom will come on this earth. And that's what we testify when we come and worship. Then we get to Daniel. 
This work really reveals God's sovereignty over all nations. And it tells us God is in control. So much rich storylines with Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel in the lion's den, and so much more. I always point to chapter 3 with the Hebrew children, the if not clause. I've preached that message here. It's one of my life messages where they're about to get thrown into the fire furnace and the three Hebrew children look to uh, the king and they say, look, God's going to save us from this. But if not, we're still going to praise him. If not, we're still going to praise him. And that needs to be our mark as believers in this day that we live. We want God to do certain things, but if not, we're still going to praise Him. We want certain people to come to repentance, but if not, we're still going to praise Him. We want to see God grow in our life. We want to see certain things happen, but if not, we're still going to praise Him. Then we get to the minor prophets. Now, they're not named because they're like losers. These are the majors. These are the minors. We don't have. No. They're named minors because of the length, thickness, and brevity of their, of their writings. The, not their importance. Their importance are incredible. The next 12 books are small in comparison to the large works of the majors, but they do conclude the New Testament. So quickly, we're going to hit all 12. Ready? Let's start with Hosea. He gets us started. He's purchasing Gomer's freedom so he could restore her. That is such a prophetic picture of Christ's redemptive work for us. Then Joel announces the day of the Lord is coming, and God desires us to return to him so he can bless us and pour out his spirit on us. Amos, Amos says religious ritual without justice and compassion towards others is useless. We must seek justice and have mercy. That's hard. Some, sometimes you, you, get, you get so merciful you let anybody run all over you. And other times you want justice, you want such a pound of flesh that you have no mercy in your heart for him. That's not godly either. Obadiah carries a powerful message that God will repay every nation for its deeds, as well as stating that God expects us to show mercy to those in distress. Show mercy to those in distress. Obadiah also only has one chapter. So if you're referring to it, could you not refer to it as Obi-Wan? <laughs> Dad joke. All right, Jonah, probably the most famous of the miners with his great fish story. Now, it's not a whale. Okay, it's a great sea creature. It's a great fish. People renamed it a whale, and then they talked about the whale's throat isn't constricted enough for a man. No, it's a sea creature. We're still finding new ones even to this day. The sea is so magnificent. But it reveals God's concern for all people. God expects his people to share his message with everyone, even those that don't like us, even those that disagree with us. And we try to share it with justice mercy, and walking humbly with the Lord. Then there's Micah. He says God will hold his people accountable. Got to believe him. Name him specifically to the people of Nineveh that no nation, regardless of its great power, can you know, have all this security and be so full of itself, it can't stand up against God's judgment. Then there's Habakkuk. Habakkuk, though you may have heard little about this book, uh, this prophet Habakkuk, I've got a three to five part sermon series coming on this one. And it's coming when we're ready to grow in the Lord in, in an authentic way. We owe a lot of our faith to this little book. Did you know that? Because in chapter 2, verse 4 of Habakkuk, it says, The just shall live by faith. It is quoted by Paul in Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11. This is what Martha Luther, Martin Luther was reading when he rediscovered the biblical doctrine of justification by faith and sparked the Reformation. 
Also in chapter 3 of Habakkuk, it says, if the fig tree doesn't bloom, still we're going to praise him. That's where the name of that company comes from, Habakkuk chapter 3. Be faithful, if not clause, if it, we're still going to praise him, the fig tree. Zephaniah, another book to declare the day of the Lord was coming on the nations, uh, Judah and the world. Haggai, written to encourage returned exiles to finish the rebuilding of the temple. And the message is that God will take care of our house if we take care of his. If we take care of God's house, he'll take care of our house. Pretty simple. Zechariah, his name means the Lord remembers. And he wrote to encourage the Jews to rebuild the temple and look forward to God's Messiah. God has a good plan for this world and for our lives under his authority, under his sovereignty, under his glory. And then Malachi, or as when I first was coming up in the faith, Malachi, he fanned the flame of faith among God's people, and to discuss the, the cure for spiritual burnout is to recall God's love. When we're going through any kind of spiritual burnout, recall God's love, justice, and he rewards obedience, even if people don't like the kind of obedience you got to follow. Even if, there's all, if, you have, if you go to work and there's all kinds of atheists in your office, you can still hold flame and don't get tired, don't burn out. Remember God's love. All right, let's get to the New Testament. That was the old. The New Testament starts with Matthew. This is the first of the four Gospels, the good news. The Gospel's called the good news. Emily shared an article with me this morning about how there's a lot of Christians now who don't actually even believe the authentic Gospel, yet they call themselves Christians. I, I don't know how that's possible, but uh, it's the first book of the New Testament. He's one of the 12 <clears throat> eyewitness to Jesus' life and ministry. He wrote specifically to demonstrate that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah promised by the Old Testament scriptures. Most of his audience was supposed to be Jewish first century people to see that the Messiah had come. He explained how Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecies with remarkable, undeniable accuracy, and we can trust Jesus as the true Messiah and the Savior of the world. Then we get to Mark. Mark is really Peter's gospel. It's long-held belief among scholars that Peter verbally shared the eyewitness account with John Mark, and John Mark wrote down what Peter said. And because of that, it's, I think, the shortest of the four Gospels, and some believe the earliest. Mark is fast-paced, uses the word immediately a lot. Immediately, Jesus left the shore. Immediately, he departed Capernaum, and so on. The book is to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. Then there's Luke, the good doctor, the only Gentile writer of the Bible books. Luke was a physician by trade, and Dr. Luke wrote and provided an accurate account of Jesus' life and ministry in order to strengthen the reader's faith. Luke really drives home the, the fact that Jesus came to be the Savior of all classes of people. And that would include us, and that's really good news. Then there's the Gospel of John. John is one of the uh, 12. He's one of the eyewitnesses. And John refers to himself in a very cool way. He refers to himself as the apostle that Jesus loved. I'm the pastor that Jesus loved. You're the people that Jesus loved. When we refer to ourselves that way, but in the context, it makes perfect sense. See, it's, it's, it's really so, it, it inspires the divinity of the Son of God. And so he's writing it down as the disciple that Jesus loved. It's so rich, and so it loudly proclaims. 
that we can trust Jesus with our today, our tomorrow, and our eternity. When you are a new Christian or a fatigued one, read or reread the Gospel of John. Then there's Acts. The second chapter of Acts is so awesome. Dr. Luke is back. He's the author of Acts. And he tells the story of the early church, how it was founded, how Paul was converted, and so, 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 so much more. My favorite non-disciple in the entire scripture is found in Acts. It's just an average dude, just a guy who loved Jesus and was just so overwhelmed with, with, with his love for Jesus. His name was Stephen, and he was fully alive in Christ that he didn't hesitate to speak the truth even when the truth was going to cost him his life. He stood his ground and delivered one of the best truth bombs ever recorded. It's in the book of Acts. Start in verse six, chapter 6 and go through verse, chapter 8 and you'll, you'll, get, you'll get it absorbed. All right, on to Romans. Such a definitive book for the Christian walk. Saul of Acts becomes Paul, writes much of the New Testament. But now what's so cool about this book is that Paul wrote it to a place he had yet to visit. Romans is huge in the explanation of God's plan of salvation. It's awesome. God grants us righteousness, right standing with him as a completely free gift through our faith in Jesus Christ. A lot of people spend a lot of time in Romans, and it's a good place to be. 1 Corinthians. If I could rename this book, I would rename it Letter to the Christian Losers Who Need to Stop Being Losers. Paul takes great pains to help this troubled church that is plagued by immorality, divisions, and bad doctrine. So as Paul writes to correct moral, congregational, and doctrinal errors, he helps all generations of Christian followers overcome influences of the ungodly culture to live in spiritual victory. Let's try that on in 2021 right now. As Christ followers to overcome the influences of the ungodly culture to live in spiritual victory. 2 Corinthians is a little different. It's much more personal. The Apostle Paul uh, lays out his conduct and ministry, his persecutions, and his visions and revelations. The book states we can totally trust a message of the Bible because it was delivered to us by proven apostles. Galatians, another Paul letter, this one to combat false teachers who came in saying, Jesus wasn't enough. You need to submit to the new law of Moses as well. Here we read that salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Ephesians, this one's a little different. Paul writes with different objectives. He's not correcting error. What he's wanting to do is increase spiritual understanding. That's what the church, by and large, nationwide needs. And so does LifeHouse a better spiritual understanding. The letter reveals that God, as part of his eternal purpose, reconciled believers to himself through the redemptive work of Jesus, and our new life should, hang on, our new life should change the way we live in the world. Philippians is about supporting the work of spreading the gospel, and in spite of his imprisonment, the cause of Christ was still advancing. That's what Philippians is about. Colossians Oh, I love Colossians, especially chapter 3. But it tells us all our spiritual needs are met in Christ, all of them. First, Thessalonians is a message to all believers we will experience persecution, but we're to endure it faithfully in the hopes of the Lord's return. That's hard. That's hard. That's hard cheese right there, but it's true. Second Thessalonians, Paul clears up the misunderstandings about the second coming and tells us to keep working for a living. A lot of people had quit their jobs 
And they were just sitting on the hill waiting for Jesus to return. First Timothy, you want to see how a proper functioning local church should be? How our faith should result in good godly behavior and service in and throughout the local church? First Timothy is your answer. Second Timothy, this is Paul's farewell in his post-game interview, as we talked about a few weeks ago. He tells us to carry on and most importantly, preach the gospel in season and out of season. What does that mean? That means in season when it's comfortable and out of season when it's not comfortable, you keep preaching the gospel. You keep sharing the word however you can. Titus, we're encouraged in the good works and make teaching about our Lord and Savior lovely or attractive. Philemon tells us the story of Onesimus, that God has graciously forgiven and accepted us, and we should graciously forgive and accept others. Hebrews, you know we all face it, the temptation to return to the old world life, our old life. We have temptations to go back there. Sometimes we romanticize the past and we forget how hard some of those things really was. This book says to stay faithful to Jesus Christ. We must keep our eyes on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, and not turn back. James, you want practical straight up in your face? You want James. To demonstrate the difference between Christian faith and fake Christian faith, we need to make it part of our daily living. Great explanation about how we don't do works to, to live out our faith. We live out our faith by doing works. It's a different thing. And how do you know the difference? Well, I've talked to you about the wheats and tares, begging you guys to look for, you know, to, to leave it in God's hands, that we can't see the wheats and tares. But it's the intentions of your heart get tried. And if your intention of your heart is to honor God and out of good old-fashioned gratitude, you can't help but do works. If you're trying to do works to get any kind of favor from God, you're wasting your time, and James gives you the big smackdown on that. First Peter. Now we hear from the early church chief spokesman directly, not through the pen of John Mark. And he implores us to follow Jesus' example to holy perseverance in a hostile world. To maintain your testimony in spite of how hard it gets. In 2 Peter, he wants to strengthen the church against external threats and false teachers coming in to introduce destructive heresies and have us treasure and hold tight the truth of the gospel. And a lot of times, those heresies masquerade like truth. They have a little bit of truth in them until you run it out then you see it's not from God. In 1 John, we're told to guard our faith in the biblical Jesus. In 2 John, we are told we uh, are to with, we're told to withhold support of false teachers and stand behind those preaching the original unaltered message of the gospel. That's what 2 John says. 3 John, it's, a, it's, it's just a smackdown on arrogant church leadership, really briefly, just boom, there it is. And it's to encourage Christians' hospitality. We are to care about Christ's love more than our own agenda. And then Jude says, snatch those from the fire. Defend the faith against heretics and evil workers. And then we get to the big finish. We get to Revelation. And if it was a play, this would be the show-stopping number of what we have in our hands when we hold the Word of God. What do we really have? We have Almighty God revealing Himself from Genesis all the way here. 
And then we get to see a small glimpse of Jesus, how he really is. And I know it's lame, and I know it's out of focus, and I know we can't see it clearly yet, but one day we will. But it tells us he has hair like wool, white as snow. His voice is like many waters. You ever stood next to a, just a rushing, rushing river, how, how immense of a sound that is? He has a golden sash around his chest. His feet are bronzed like fired in a furnace, and his sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth, and his face shines like the sun at full strength. This is the Jesus we serve. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And of his kingdom there will be no end, and every knee will bow. That's who we serve. The victory is already won, and now we walk in it. And as we do, we strengthen each other because we're all fallible. And in our fallibility, we want to see justice done. But we want to love mercy. We want to love mercy more than justice when we can, but justice sometimes needs to be done. And how do we do that? We walk humbly because we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The last verse in the Bible is 22:21 of Revelation. It says this, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Please stand. Thanks for tuning in to our Sunday message. To donate, request prayer, or to contact Pastor Chris, you can write to Lifehouse Church at P.O. Box 661, Abilene, Kansas, 67410, or go online at lifehouse-church.com. On behalf of the entire congregation, thanks again for your support.